This is the Build Wealth Canada podcast, episode number 38. Welcome to the Build Wealth Canada podcast, where it's all about becoming debt-free, accelerating your wealth, and taking control of your money. Now, here's your host, Cornell Schreiber. Hey, it's Cornell and welcome to the Build Wealth Canada show. Today, I'm excited to have Mark Seed on the show who runs the popular Canadian blog, My Own Advisor. And on the blog, he documents his journey and lessons learned as he invests towards achieving an early retirement and as he works on growing his portfolio to $1 million so that he can achieve that early retirement. Now, what's very interesting about Mark is that he is a hybrid investor, meaning he doesn't just invest in one particular way. For example, he doesn't just buy indexes with ETFs. Instead, he uses as ETFs to hold U.S. and international companies, but when it comes to the Canadian portion of his portfolio, he holds individual stocks of strong dividend-paying companies here in Canada instead of just holding a single ETF that captures all the major companies in Canada. So this is a bit of a different strategy than what I've been doing, and so I thought it'd be great to have Mark on the show to broaden our view by seeing how others invest, learn why he invests in that way, so the pros and the cons, and see if maybe it's a good fit for the way you invest. Now, before we get into that, I wanted to thank this episode's sponsor, Paytm, which is a free app that helps you manage all your bills in one place. Now, when I first heard of this, I thought, but I can already do that with my bank. Well, Paytm pays you to pay your bills. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, you can get up to 2% cash back on the bills that you pay through the app and can even get as high as 10% cash back on certain purchases. Now, no bank in Canada is giving out that much when you pay your bills. Usually, you get nothing when you're paying your bills through your bank. What's also unique is that Paytm lets you pay bills that don't normally accept credit cards. This is a big deal for me because while you may have a great credit card, you typically can't use it to pay for things like property tax and utilities. And if you're a student or have kids in college or university, you typically can't use your credit card to pay the tuition and get the credit card reward points because those places just don't accept credit cards. So I've been getting 0% cash back on bills for years. With Paytm, you can get up to 2% cash back on those bills too. And since these are large bills that you're paying all the time, probably forever if we're talking about paying utilities and property tax, the free money that you get through the cash back really starts to add up. So with the Paytm app, you're getting the ability to manage all bill payments in one place. You're getting reminders when the bills are due and you get cash back even on the bills you typically don't get any rewards for paying. So as a sponsor of the show, Paytm is giving away $10 cash back to all Build Wealth Canada listeners when they make their first bill payment. So to get that, you just have to download the Paytm app from the Apple App Store or Google Play. And when you run the app, just choose the type of bill that you'd like to pay. And when you're paying the bill, enter the promo code BUILDWEALTH. And when you do that, you'll instantly get $10 cash back from that bill. So that promo code again is BUILDWEALTH, all lowercase and no spaces to get the $10 cash back. You can also go to paytm.ca and download the app from there, whether you're an Apple or Android user. So a big thanks to Paytm for supporting Belove Canada and sponsoring the episode. And now let's get into the show. All right, Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Cornell. Appreciate uh, you having me. Yeah, no problem. So really to start things off, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your investing journey, as well as your blog too? Yeah, for sure. So um, well, a little bit about me, I'm uh, I'm a project manager actually for a, for a national not-for-profit uh Healthcare organization. I've been there for for many years. Um, my background in terms of education is is really not geared towards, uh, I would say, accounting or personal finance or or anything in that sort. I'm I'm a biologist by trade, and uh, I got a health administration degree as well. And you know, my investing journey, 
I guess it started probably um, maybe like most of my cohort um, with big bank mutual funds in my 20s. And I kept investing those in my 30s. And, um, you know, I, I guess I, I got into investing because my parents really told me to pay myself first. And so, you know, largely popularized by, you know, David Chilton's The Wealthy Barber. Um, when I read that, I thought, geez, that sounds like a really good idea. Um, so I did that. I did my big bank mutual funds. Um, but then I started getting more serious into it probably about 10 years or so ago in my, uh, in my mid thirties. And I started figuring out, you know, or started asking myself rather, you know, where does all my money go? And, and, you know, through the financial crisis, it's like, what's happening with my funds and am I getting value for service from these funds? And do I understand the fee structure of my funds? And so basically, um, you know, over time, Cornell, what I tried to try to do is I tried to self-educate myself and, you know, as the blog, um, says my own advisor, I became my own financial advisor by basically doing a, um, a retrospective look at, you know, why I invest the way I do and how should I invest and what does that mean for my wife and, and I and um, our, our future financial uh, prospects. So that's really kind of where things started and, um, you know, kind of in a, in a fast forward way where I've, where I've ended up to be. That's awesome. So one of the things that really interested me about your specific case is that you're a hybrid investor. So what made you decide to be a hybrid investor instead of just sticking with index investing or just sticking with dividend investing? Yeah, you know, it's a great question. And I, 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 I get also from, from time to time from, you know, friends and, and family and such. And I think the big thing, um, uh, you know, I'll start with indexing, I guess, or index investing and, and folks that, you know, follow your show and, and, and the like probably are very well aware of it. But I'm a big cam big fan of that just because um, you, you basically can ride market returns, right? So there's a level of transparency with various, um, you know, index funds or, or low cost exchange traded funds, whatever the flavor may be. And you can really kind of set and forget part of your portfolio. But at the same time, you're getting this, you know, extra diversification. You don't have to buy dozens and dozens of stocks. You don't have to speculate. You're basically, uh, in a sense, uh, as Warren Buffett says, you're, you're buying the market, you're buying the farm. So I really like that approach. But at the same time, um, I've recognized over time, and maybe it'll change, but the Canadian market itself it's not very diversified, right? So we we tend to have thirty to forty percent of our economy in in banks, and the you know the rest of the economy churns through the energy sector, and then you've got some telcos and and life insurance companies that kind of drive the the Canadian market. And so when I sat back and I looked at the Canadian market, I thought, you know, it's really monopolized or 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 dominated by a number. Um, a few sectors, but only a handful of players in that sector. And I thought, does it make sense to to really index Canada? Maybe what I can do is is you know own some of the the stocks that typically dominate the market, collect the dividends from those stocks, use that for passive income, but then really for the U.S. and you know the rest of the world, why not you just index? Because I can't possibly ever buy hundreds or thousands of companies from around the world. So that's really why I do the hybrid investing. I, I tend to be a dividend investor here in Canada and, and invest in stocks and, and do that for income. But then I kind of resign myself to the fact that, you know what, I, I can't possibly do the research on all these other companies from around the world. Why don't I just, other than a few US stocks that I own, why don't I just index everything else and, and have some low cost ETFs and be done with it. And so that's what I do. That's really clever. Yeah. So that, that makes uh, that makes a lot of sense because I mean, with Canada, right? You're you're gonna get a lot of dividend tax credit. There's all these tax advantages to having, uh, to basically receiving dividends from Canadian companies. So that makes 
that's really yeah that's that's really interesting how you kind of optimized it from from that level um yeah no that that's yeah i didn't know that was part of your that was part of your strategy i thought you're kind of doing you know dividend companies from you know all over the world uh but no that makes uh that makes a lot of sense yeah, I mean, I, I, and it's not something that I've, you know, uh, kind of uh, jumped into. Um, and I kind of sat back and I thought, okay, well, you know, looking at XIU, that's a very popular, uh, very fluid ETF um, uh, in Canada. I think it's, you know, maybe ten or twelve billion dollars in assets. And I looked at the holdings of that that ETF for many years, and I look at the holdings of many Canadian dividend funds from the banks and such, and I saw the same holdings all the time. I saw the same five banks. I saw the same three telcos. Right. I saw the same life insurance companies. And I thought, is it really that difficult to just own those companies directly? And so through a few years of, of you know researching this stuff and, and looking at the returns and the performance, I thought – I'm not sure it's that difficult. Now, again, for the other companies from around the world, I can't possibly have the time to research it. But I, but so far, I think the strategy is working quite well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, for, for sure. And then, is there a specific target that you set per sector? Because you said you you kind of you you, you realize the fact that we are over. I mean, we have way too many. Um, the giant portion of our kind of Canadian index isn't just a few, like three different industries, basically. So is there a specific target that you try to hit, like 20% per sector or something like that? Yeah, give or take. Yeah, what I've really tried to do is um, unbundle or debundle really that that XIU ETF that I talked about okay. uh, just a few minutes ago. So I, I kind of say, you know what, for my Canadian portion of my portfolio, um, where I'm trying to keep that, you know, maybe below 50% of my total assets. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, let's let's try to own 30 to 40% financials. Let's not go too crazy and own just bank stocks and think that's going to rule the world. At the same time, let's own some energy companies, maybe 20, 30%. Let's own some telcos. But I do I do tip the favor in terms of utilities in my portfolio. I probably own more closer to five, 10, maybe you know, upwards of 15% of my portfolio in utilities. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's just because I have a bias to those companies that pay dividends, and I find the Canadian market, um, I think it's only like three or 4% of utilities. And so I, I tilted in the favor just because of the dividend histories of some of the companies I own. Mm-hmm. That's great. Yeah, because I'm really glad to. Yeah, yeah, you're sharing this with us because yeah, that's that's one of the things I've been really struggling with is, you know, like I right now I buy just the Canadian index, but I, I, you know, the more research I do, the more I read into it, the more I realize how, you know, how how we're really just focused on just three kind of main sectors, you know, the energy, financials, materials, and so there's all this kind of warning that you shouldn't be this <laughs> focused on just three sectors, uh, especially if a large portion of your portfolio is in Canadian stocks. So it's um, yeah, so th- so that's that's really interesting. You, you basically found a way to kind of get get or get around that essentially in a way so that's um that's great no i appreciate you sharing that and so when you're when you're trying to select which company to buy you know what's the process that you take for selecting you know which dividend companies to actually purchase you mentioned you kind of unbundle the xiu is that kind of the only criteria that you use or do you use something else yeah no i definitely use some other criteria and um you know uh, certainly your some of your your followers can definitely check out the money saver article i wrote with um ryan modesto actually um in may of this year um because i i wanted to kind of show um you know readers of Canadian money saver a little bit of my thinking into some key dividend metrics so obviously i look at dividend history i think i already alluded to that in that i, I look for companies with with established dividend histories, those blue chip stocks have been paying and rewarding shareholders for many for many decades, ideally generations. 
Um, but I also look at dividend yield. You know, we want to make sure that the dividend isn't too high. Um, you know, six, seven percent is kind of getting un, you know, into unsustainable territory. Right. But I also don't want um, anything too low because then it begs the question, well, why don't I just index anyway? So I'm kind of looking for that sweet spot between three and five percent mm-hmm. uh, for my yield. I also look at earnings per share. Um, and your readers probably know that's really a net income minus, you know, the dividends um, on preferred stock divided by uh, outstanding shares. So again, a, a high EPS, a high earnings per share, and also a rising EPS are really good things in my book because um, we want earnings to rise with these companies. Uh, dividend payout ratio is another one. Um, again, kind of you want a sweet spot. You don't want dividend payout ratio too low because maybe the the company's um, not always a bad thing if they have a high debt uh, to pay down, but you don't want them to be paying out too much either, right? Because then they're they're basically uh, doling out a lot of their their um, their potential income or or uh, retained income in terms of uh, in terms of dividends. So you want to look at cash flow, dividend growth rate. So to summarize, you know, looking at the yield, the EPS, the dividend payout ratio, and cash flow. Um, to me, those are really good things to watch uh, out for, uh, other than the obvious, you know, company uh, company debt. Mm-hmm. Also, and then once you've done that due diligence, and you so you find out, okay, this, you know, these this group of companies, they seem like a good, you know, the numbers check out for them. Everything looks good with the ratios. What analysis do you do to ter- determine whether now is actually the great uh, a good time to buy? So, for example, how do you decide whether a company is currently overvalued or undervalued? Do you try to get the timing right? How big of a impact does that play on your decision? Yeah, you, you know, to be honest, I, I don't really put too much stress on myself in terms of trying to time anything just because you just don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. And so, you know, while I do look at things like 52-week lows and I watch the payout ratio because sometimes if the if the dividend payout ratio itself, if the yield happens to be kind of um, above the historical average, um then usually, you know, a higher dividend yield above the historical average means that the price could be lower, right? right so you right. have a higher yield, a lower price. So those are things to look for. You may want to look at PE ratios, so price earnings ratios. So you know, um, you know, those things generally lower is better, but there's no guarantees of that because that that ranges on the sector. But I generally look at kind of 52-week lows, look at recent uh, rising earnings from the company and and the payout ratio. And to be honest, you know, when I have a bit of cash saved up between my wife and I. We, we, we tend to just um, buy, uh, you know, a couple of times a year to rebalance our portfolio back to that XIU proportion mm-hmm. I talked about on the Canadian side. And that's that's really as sophisticated as it gets because, in my opinion, long term, um, the stock market will rise. And, and sitting around and, and waiting for that perfect moment, you're basically taking your opportunity um, out by, by sitting on the sidelines and waiting. And, and really, to me, long term – the best plan, whether you're an indexer or dividend investor, is is to be in the market um, through the ups and downs, and, and over many many years, you're, you're going to get rewarded for doing so. Mm-hmm. So, so if you find a company that you really like, but let's say right, you look at just very recently, it's it's been hitting its you know 52 week high. It's kind of you know the highest it's it's ever been. Do you kind of say okay, let's let's wait for it to go to, to drop a little bit, or do you kind of or, or like or like you said, you don't really worry too much about that because it's it's more of a long term investment. Yeah, it, it's a bit of both, to be honest. Mm-hmm. You know, like uh, bank stocks and 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 you know maybe you know other stocks on the TXX right now are are, are climbing higher and higher. But you know, um, I have to I also have to look at that rebalancing act right in my portfolio. If I'm a bit low on my utilities, even though utility stocks are going up 
higher and higher, or they're maybe going uh, lower with interest rates rising, or whatever. I have to weigh that in too. So there's there really is no perfect formula for me. I, I have to kind of balance out my mm-hmm. my 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 assets in terms of my my sector. Uh, allocation, but at the same time, I have to sit back and think. You know, am I better off investing now, even if prices are a bit high, than sitting around and waiting for a perfect time six months or a year from now? And and my answer is usually, you know, even if markets are a bit high, um, it's okay to be investor because when if you think about the indexing theory, today's price is the best price. Exactly. So. Yeah. 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 It's a question I get pretty often: is people kind of are, are trying to time it just right, and oh, should I wait for it to drop? That kind of a thing. And so. You know, but then you can. It's so easy to get stuck just sitting on cash, waiting to invest, waiting for this perfect moment, and then, like you said, you know, six months later, it's still, <laughs> you know, it still hasn't had a big of enough dip. You, you still haven't bought in. Now you've missed out on dividends as well. You know, the stock might have grown as well by now. So it's, uh, you know, it's kind of opportunity cost you have to think about too. Absolutely, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So how do you deal with the risk that you're investing in individual companies as opposed to let's say you know hundreds or thousands like you would through an ETF? So uh, for example, let's say you're holding CIBC. How do you deal with the worry that something might happen at that particular company and it could potentially never recover back? So, for example, you know Nortel, BlackBerry, that kind of comes to comes to mind, right? Where you know, like BlackBerry, you, you don't know if it's ever gonna you know get to those high levels it once had. Nortel obviously is is not gonna get there. So, how how do you deal with that? Yeah, so I I guess the first thing I'd say is um, certainly I, I find. All forms of investing have some level of risk. So like you hold cash under your mattress, it's got a risk of having inflation diminishing your purchasing power, right? So when you hold bonds, you you worry about interest rates rising and reducing your your purchasing power and your capital in in the future. Um, Mutual funds and ETFs, you're obviously paying a fee. So you're entrusting that the, the fund manager can outsmart the market and such. Now, index funds obviously helps you in that regard because you're you're paying for slight under market performance, less some minuscule fees. But I, I get around the the risk of investing in any one individual company by really trying to um, ensure that my my Nortel effect, if you will, that you alluded to, mm-hmm. that any one that any one stock is probably not more than five percent of my portfolio. Okay. And and even when I'm talking to you, you know, right now and today, um, I think my well, I know my biggest asset is actually not in any individual stock at all. It's actually an ETF, um, a US ETF VYM. So you know that's that's I've got more assets in a in a low cost um, uh, ETF in the US than I do in any one individual Canadian stock. And and by spreading my my three or or two or three or four percent around in all my Canadian stocks. I'm not really overly concerned that if CIBC does poorly for a few quarters or a few years, that's going to kill my portfolio. I've got other bank stocks. I've got, you know, my utility stocks. I've got REITs. And so by holding a low percent in any one company, by offsetting that with some uh, low-cost ETFs for diversification, um, plus the fact that I'm holding multiple dividend stocks from multiple sectors, I I feel that any one company won't kill my portfolio. Mm -hmm. And then how did you decide on your allocation? Like you mentioned, you, um, you you have REITs as well, right? So how how did you figure out what allocation you have within your stock portion of your portfolio? Yeah, I actually for the REITs piece, I actually looked at David Swenson's um, um, kind of you know model, you know the uh, the Yale Endowment Fund, and, and right. he's a very famous investor, and he basically came up with a you know kind of a. a uh, philosophy, or I guess a framework for for investors, you know, whether it's a thirty percent domestic equity and maybe twenty percent international or foreign equity, and a bit of bonds, and then a bit of REITs, and mm-hmm. 
and, and the like. And I kind of looked at that and I thought, you know, that makes some sense. You know, maybe mm-hmm. what I should do for my own portfolio, even though I'm a, I'm a dividend investor and a hybrid investor uh, with indexing, why don't I own 5 to 10% in REITs? And why don't I own maybe, um, you know, the 30 to 40 percent in or 30, 40 percent in Canadian equity and maybe the rest will be in U.S. and international equity. And what we've decided to do is we don't actually own any bonds because we're very fortunate through our workplace to have pensions. And so I consider the pensions a big bond. And so when I add all that together, that's actually a fairly good balanced asset portfolio, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. And how many stocks do you hold? You mentioned the Canadian stocks for your dividend portion. How, how many are in your uh, Canadian for your Canadian exposure? Basically, how many stocks do you hold? Yeah, right. Yeah, right now I'm about uh, I'm about 33, 33 for the okay. Kane stocks, which is which is quite a bit. Yeah, mm-hmm. which is quite a bit when you think about it. Um, but then when you add up kind of some of the sectors, you know, your banking sector, the financial sector, your utilities, um, your REITs, mm-hmm. uh, the telcos, et cetera, and some materials, um, it, it 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 doesn't take long to get there if you're trying to uh, make sure you you add in um, a couple of those companies per some of those sectors. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. So kind of just alluding to my previous question about how, you know how do you offset the fact that you're investing in individual companies. So you mentioned that five kind of percent rule that you have. And then obviously if you're holding 33 stocks, you're, you're very, you're definitely not expecting, uh, you know, you're basically you know, expecting, you know, 10 stocks that you know, you're only going to hold 10 and those are going to outperform and you're going to do great. You're, you're really kind of making sure you're diversified from that perspective. And I think there's been a fair bit of research to has in there where if uh, I think like the sweet spot is, I think it was like uh, over, over 20 stocks, right. Is where you really start to get those benefits of the diversification. Um, so, and you, you, you know, you're, you're, I think it was over, over 20, between 20 and 25, I think they were saying, so you're kind of, you have 33, so you're pretty well uh, diversified in that area as well. Yeah, and I, yeah, and I think I, I certainly would advise, and again, this is me personally, I probably would advise many investors to go much less than that as long as they're, you know, maybe if, maybe if they're doing more of a core and explore philosophy, right? right so they're right. indexing indexing quite a bit like your, your, yourself or, mm-hmm. or other successful investors where they've basically got a core or a very balanced approach to weather many market storms. But if they want to do a bit of an explore, that's fine. Maybe they have a few stocks. But if you're really, if you're going to really be a stock investor, um, I think it does pay, um, you know, you, you need to pay attention to diversification just because, um, again, the old adage, you don't want to put all your eggs in one basket. Right, right. And then what made you choose to buy individual dividend paying companies instead of buying something like the aristocrat ETF? Uh, and, and if you can maybe define what that is as well for any readers that aren't familiar, was it, did you do it just to avoid the fees basically? Um, a little bit to avoid the fees, but you know, the aristocrat uh, ETF is, is really those things or those, um, I guess, stocks that are really designed to reward shareholders year after year, right? So there's, I think in Canada, those aristocrat ETFs kind of have criteria where they've got, you know, certain growth metrics, they've uh, rewarded shareholders, um, but, you know, uh, by growing their dividends, probably, you know, at least five years, those kind of things. So that's kind of an aristocrat. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of the king of the kings, if you will, um, philosophy. Now, the States does it a little bit differently. I think they've got dividend aristocrats where their, where their criteria is at least 25 years of right. consecutive dividend growth. And you get dividend kings and all these other kind of monikers with it. But that's the aristocrat thing. But yeah, to your question, while I think some of the dividend ETFs have some very good companies in them, um, 
if you look at like an ETF like C, uh, CDZ, I think it is, an iShares product, you know, if you go by that aristocrat criteria, there are some great companies that out of the financial crisis didn't grow their dividends for five years straight, um, but they're excellent companies and, and you know, Canadian banks and, and some of the some of the LifeCo companies come to mind where they weathered the financial storm, they still paid their dividends. Um, but then you got a lot of capital appreciation and growth out of the financial crisis with them. So even though they weren't an aristocrat, you got a lot of price appreciation and they kept their dividend flowing for you. So while I think the ETFs, the dividend ETFs in Canada for, for that matter, do have some great companies, they do leave some solid ones out. And that's oh, okay. one of my one of my issues with some of the dividend ETFs is you're, you're stuck with the dividend ETF for the fund manager criteria. You can't make your own. Mm-hmm. I think the second thing, and you alluded to it, is the cost. When I look at the cost of some of the d- dividend ETFs, they're you know, for, for an ETF product, they're three or four times higher than maybe an index product. And so, right. again, it begs, the, it begs the question, and if you're only looking at a handful of, of blue chips or, you know, maybe in my case, a couple dozen or so blue chip stocks, is it really that difficult to be understanding those ones and buy them yourselves? And I've mm-hmm. decided, for at least my own purposes, um, the answer is no. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then another reason um, is really when you look at the dividend ETFs in Canada – so on iShares, XDV, even the XIU I talked about as well. There's a Vanguard product. I think it's a VDY. It's a high dividend ETF. If you look at the holdings, they're fundamentally the same. They're all the seven, they're the, the five banks, and some of them have a very high weight in financials. I think VDY in particular, if you look at the top 10 um, before I came on the podcast with you, I think it's like 72% or something like that in financials. Wow. It's crazy high. And so when I look at that, I think, is that a product I want to own? Because it's so weighted to the financial sector. Why don't I buy the financials and hold them rather that I think is more appropriate? Maybe it's a more appropriate to have 30 or 40% financials, not 72. Right, right. So, you know, for all these reasons, you know, the fees, the way the funds are constructed. And then lastly, I control the turnover. I can control the portfolio. If my long-term goal is to grow the point where I can live off some dividends with my wife and I, I control the stocks. I, I can buy and sell them. I can turn on the drips. I can turn off the drips whenever I want. And so by doing all these things, I can basically control my own destiny mm-hmm. um, a little bit with the portfolio. Whereas the fund, you buy the fund, you own the portfolio in the fund, and that's kind of it. Mm-hmm. That's a fantastic answer. Yeah, because a, a lot of the... Um information online like if someone just googles aristocrat etf canada you'll get a lot of uh, kind of rosy things right about how how great it is and how this is such a good thing so i'm glad you kind of said okay not to say that they're necessarily bad but there is a there is a downside to them as well so we have to obviously look at the kind of pros and cons of it it's not only pros uh, for the aristocrat ETF, and yeah, I have it. Uh, yeah, so no, so thanks, uh, thanks for sharing that. That's a great, uh, that's a great answer. Um, yeah, no problem. Yeah, so Mark, when you choose to retire, how do you plan on changing your asset allocation, if at all? So you're basically going from right now, you're in an asset accumulation stage. When you decide to kind of get into that asset decumulation phase, how how are you going to change things up? Yeah. Um... It's a ways out, so mm-hmm. so I don't really see it changing too much, to be honest. And and certainly, you know, um, uh, it could change. A, you know, it could uh, it could change quite a bit in a few years. You know, the future is always unknown. But I but I do consider to or do you know plan to hold basically the same amount of stocks that I do today. Maybe the thirty odd Canadian dividend stocks. Maybe a few U.S. stocks that I continue to own. And I really I really basically 
plan to keep the high equity allocation in our personal portfolio and keep the obviously the, the big bond component, if you will, with the pension at, at mm-hmm. work and, and thankfully to have it. I actually might own a little bit more ETFs, to be honest. Um, and it's not to say I'll, 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 get, I'll forego, you know, um, the monopoly approach to dividend investing, you know, own some banks, own some utilities, own some railroads, all that fun stuff. <laughs> mm-hmm. But but I could see myself owning a few more low cost ETFs. And the reason for that is, is, you know, as I get older, I probably want to diversify even a little bit more. I want to hedge some of my risks in terms of owning individual companies. And to be honest, for, you know, for my wife, um, maybe simplify things, you know, um, just because, uh, you know, gosh forbid something happens to me, but I want to make sure that the the portfolio is constructed to make sure that, that you know, uh, she's well and good and, and she understands, um, you know, exactly how the portfolio is constructed and it can meet her needs. But, mm-hmm. I, you know, to be honest, short term, five, 10 years, I really don't see the model changing too much. We'll continue to own the stocks for income and the ETFs for distributions and growth and and basically keep the same companies we're, we're, we're owning as long as they pay dividends and grow them. And are you guys thinking of doing a more traditional type of retirement uh, or are you thinking of doing it much earlier? What are your thoughts about it right now? Yeah, I mean, I wish I could retire a little bit earlier, to be honest. Um, it'd be really, really nice. I know a few early retirees and they seem to be uh, they seem to be having a great time with it. Um, you know, I, I think I'd, I'd like to probably, um, what am I now, I'm in my 40s, early 40s. You know, probably by age 50, to be honest, it'd be nice to be mm-hmm. in a place where a lot of the dividend income is providing our basic, um, um, you know, necessities of life, like the shelter, the food, the, you know, the the like. And then, you know, if we if we need to work part time or we can scale back work and, and provide that for, you know, maybe a few trips during the year and and maybe a few luxuries like going to a few hockey games like I do um, or like, you know, go to the Red Blacks games here in Ottawa like I do. That would be great. Um, you know, I'm optimistic we can get there in you know in another few years, but um, but that's kind of the plan. You know, kind of some some sort of a, of a semi-retirement or you know a victory lap retirement or whatever you want to call it. But then you know, as obviously as you get older, then you'd have the cash uh, in the bank and you'd have the house paid for, and and then you wouldn't need to work. So it'd be it'd be nice to have a few transition years, mm-hmm. to be honest, Cornell. Mm-hmm. So let's say you, you you did it when you're 50. Would you actually then put even more of your allocation into Canadian dividend payers because you've got the the dividend tax credit that you could take advantage of? Uh, I believe it's somewhere around 50,000. You can earn pretty much tax free if all you're doing is earning dividend income is, is that something that you would consider because that, that's kind of one thing i've been wrestling with is right there's this big incentive to have these canadian dividend paying companies if you're uh like, like my, my wife right now you know she's a fully you know she uh, quit her job retired she's a kind of stay well i can't see retired because she's a stay-at-home mom which is still a lot of work but right absolutely <laughs> but, you know, I, I i told her that i, I mentioned it casually before and she got she got a little mad at me she's like i'm not retired like I, i'm you know raising her child this is actually a lot of work and stuff so i can't i can't call her it's just different kind of work, but it's definitely work. Yeah. That, that's right. Yeah. So, so, you know, but I can her case, for instance, right? Like, so she's a stay at home uh, mom now, like very recently, you know, this happened. Right. And, and so she doesn't have an actual income anymore. Right. So in her case, I mean, if, you know, if she had a lot of dividend paying companies, you know, so t- I mean, theoretically, if I'm not mistaken, she could get, you know, close to 50 K in income from dividends and, and she wouldn't be you know taxed on that. Right. That's um, right. So, that's kind of the dilemma, right? Is do you want to then have, you know, so if we were to try to pull something like that off, um, would you, would we have to, 
I mean, it, it starts feeling a little bit uns, uh, not as diversified, right? Because that means you're going to be funneling more and more money into Canada, into Canadian companies, as opposed to spreading it out internationally. So you're kind of taking on that extra uh, risk. You know, what, what do you what do you think of that? Yeah, it, it's an interesting uh, dilemma. I mean, I, I guess to be honest, it's a very nice problem to have, right? In, in the sense that you can you can continue to invest in a non-registered account because maybe your TFSA is maxed out already with Canadian assets and your RSP maybe has a bias to US assets. Right, and right. Yeah. It's optimized for those tax reasons and, and such. So, you know, to be to be frank, that's an excellent position to be in in terms of trying to strive to get more dividend income from a tax um from, from basically dividend paying stocks or or div, or efficient uh, Canadian funds, right? That all that also kind of uh, get covered under the dividend tax credit. I think for us, to be honest, um, you know, given that we've got uh, a dozen or so years of pension in the bank, um, which is great, um, we've got our our RSPs that are largely maxed out. Our TFSAs are fully funded. We we've actually got quite of a blend of accounts going, mm-hmm. and so I think for us. To be just focused on really trying to ramp up the non-registered account, what may happen in doing that is, yeah, we may be able to live off that income, but eventually we'll have to draw down the RSP at some point, right. and we'll have to we'll have to look at taking some pension income at some point. And so I don't want to be in a position, um, which obviously is a nice tax problem to have, but we don't want a tax problem per se in retirement. So we'll we'll try to smooth things out, if you will. And I'm I'm still kind of working through all those numbers of what that may be, but mm-hmm. it'd be nice to have a fairly balanced approach where I've got the dividend income to some shape or form um, in the non-registered. The TFSA is kind of sitting there. That would be the last account we'd probably ever touch. But then we'd slowly draw down the RSP prior to taking the pensions from work. Right. Um, that makes sense. So that way we've got the the non-registered um, dividend income kind of tax advantage, the TFSA full, which is very tax advantage, it's tax-free, as you know. Mm-hmm. And then we've really drawn down the the tax liability, which is the RSP, and really then we've also got that big bond component, which is the pension. So to me, that would be the ideal blend, but how it's all going to play out, I, I still got to run the numbers. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of what I've been trying to... It, it is a good problem to have, but I'm just... Yeah, <laughs> but, but, it's, but it's something that I've been trying to kind of figure out because, yeah, it's like... You know, some people already now, right, they argue that, oh, you shouldn't even have a third of your... Um, of your equity portion in Canada because it's such a small part of the U.S. economy. I mean, such a small part of the world economy, right? right. And so some people will even, you know, like, I, we have a third of our equity portion in, in Canada and some people will argue even against that, uh, you know, so, but, and if you're going with this sort of Canadian dividends approach, uh, then you're going to be realistically probably putting in even you know more than th- the 30 uh, 33% right so that's right. Um, so that's kind of the yeah so i've been sort of struggling with that a little bit is this how to, how to how to optimize it uh, but i can see with you guys it's even more complicated cuz you guys have your rsps so you're going to you've got that tax liability and then you've got your pensions too right so <laughs> it's going to be yeah. you got to you're going to have one heck of a spreadsheet when all is said and done <laughs> absolutely yeah. i'm going to i'm going to i'm going to get very good at uh, pivot tables and all things in in excel for sure yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe that will be your victory lap thing. You'll be a financial planner or something because after you've gone through it, you'll, you'll know so much that uh, you can optimize this for other people. That's right. Hey, never say never, right? Yeah, never yeah. say never. Exactly. Um, no, that's awesome. So uh, speaking of asset allocation, what are your thoughts about using bonds as part of your portfolio? I know in your case, it's a little different because you guys have the, you know, you have the pensions and so you're kind of treating that as that safe portion of your portfolio. But I'm finding now a lot of Canadians, I think, are feeling reluctant to just use bonds in general, just because one, you know, the returns are still relatively low. 
And there also there's all the speculation too about interest rates continuing to climb. And so then that's gonna that means you know your existing bond portfolio is gonna take a bit of a hit possibly. So you know how do you how do you feel about using bonds right now with kind of in the state that things are in? Yeah, um, it's a very tricky question for sure, and and it, it, you know it's multifaceted answers. But you know, I'll, I'll say out of the gate, I can't blame people for for struggling with the bond component just because you know higher interest rates. I mean, interest rates have been so low, so that means you know um, everything's been just uh, uh, very low in terms of uh, appreciation on bonds. But now with higher interest rates going up, your bond prices are going down, right? So that's 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 a you know we've had this stagnation for so long, and now we're getting hit uh, almost like a double whammy, if you will. Again, because we have those work pay, workplace pensions, a, a defined benefit, but also a defined contribution. Um, there is a bit of a liability for the defined contribution on, on us, as you know, but um, it is a big bond. I, I consider that. But I, I would say for many investors, they may want to consider bonds or, or some form of fixed income or cash wedge, you know, where they've got a basically a, a fairly big float of cash or or fixed income or something as they enter retirement. And the reason I say that is because you just don't know what the future is going to hold, right? Um so, you know, you want to make sure, obviously, that you've got uh, your basic retirement expenses covered through your, your portfolio and your drawdown rates and all those things. But um, I still think bonds or, or a certain level of fixed income has a place in portfolio just because you don't know what the future holds. Um, you may want to self-insure, um, you know, things with, with your family, with your house, with your, you know, as you enter semi-retirement, your job situation. So I always think it makes sense to have some worth of whether it's a half a year's worth, maybe a year's worth of living expenses in cash as you enter retirement, if you're not going to go with bonds, mm-hmm. um, you basically need to have a fairly significant cash wedge because um, you just don't know what the equity markets will do. You know, things have been great for the last seven years. They really have. Anyone that's been investing in the U.S. Um, or even Canadian market for that matter for the last seven, eight years has, has been on a great run. But mm-hmm. there's nothing to say the next seven or eight will be the same. And so right. – you know, bonds are really, I think Andrew Hallam said it best in his Millionaire Teacher book, they're really parachutes for your portfolio. So when your portfolio bottoms out, unless you're, you've are you got a strategy in place to earn income from your portfolio, um, those prices, those portfolio values as part of your equity portion will fall. And so you need to be comfortable with that. And if you're not, um, you may want bonds to cushion that that fall. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that that's a good uh, that's a good point. Yeah, like some of the other strategies I've heard, actually some some other uh, guests I've had as well. Uh, there was that goal with you know all equity, hundred percent equity. They, for sure, they would have something like a, especially if they're retired, they'll have like a one, even mo- mo- usually a two year cushion actually, just in case something happens, right? Because they're not working, they're retired. They you know they they're clearly investing in equity, so we didn't know what's gonna happen there, uh, and so they kind of keep that really really large cash cushion. So no, I th- I think that's a good. Um, that's a, good, that's a good answer, yeah. Um, and then do you um, do you have, actually, one more question. So we, we kind of covered this already a bit earlier, but I just want to mention that again, just in case there's something you want to add. So sure. uh, like we talked about already, there's a common criticism with the Canadian index, and, and that's that it's basically you know energy, financials, materials. And it sounds like you've um, kind of, the way that you've overcome that is by picking individual stocks and actually making, uh, investing the right amount in the different sectors, as opposed to letting you have an over-representation of energy, financials, materials. Is, is that kind of, uh, are there, did you have anything else to add to that? Or is that pretty much your your kind of best answer for how to get over this whole problem with Canada not being very well diversified like the U.S. is? 
Yeah, no, it, it's pretty much the the same answer. I really try not to overthink the portfolio too much. You know, for the Canadian side of things, you know, there there's there's uh, the Canadian banks and the and the life co's life insurance companies have been kind of leaders of the financial sector. So when you look at holdings like and you know funds, you know, you can look it up any, any uh, big bank mutual fund or or low cost ETFs like XIU from iShares or VCN from Vanguard. Um, you know, BMO has ZCN, I think. Um, you know, you look at the top holdings, and and really, they are they are banks, they are um, railroads, they are um, you know utility companies like Fortis and Amera and stuff. And and what I try to do is again just keep the the allocations or the uh, weightings of those individual companies in my personal portfolio modestly low, so I don't overdo it. Um, try to align them to what some of the the big funds do, and then really try to index everything else from U.S. stocks and multinationals to to low cost ETFs, and I really try don't not to, to overthink it any more other than that. Mm, awesome. And then, do you have any other advice for dividend focused investors, or just just investors in general, maybe anyone getting started, or even someone that maybe has been doing it for a while? Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, to be honest, I mean, uh, I do get quite a few questions from the site. You know, um, my own advisor, and um, it's great. You know, I get I get investing questions from millennials and. You know the thirty, uh, the forty-something set, fifty-something set, and then you know certainly retirees that have been retired for a while. And and one of the things that I they stress to some uh, some millennials, if I can speak to that cohort a little bit, is you know they do say to save early and save often and all that stuff. But if you have a lot of consumer debt, you've you've maxed out credit cards, you've got a big student loan, maybe you shouldn't be investing at all. Mm-hmm. And and so you may you may want to start young. That's great. But if you've, you know, you've got credit card debt, you've got uh, student loan debt that's um, very high, and you know, congratulations, you've got the right job. And and I actually profiled one investor, um, a millennial, on my site. I think the title of the post was "Big Problems and Big Opportunities." And he was in his mid 30s. He had no budget. He had no emergency fund, and he just bought a new car with fifteen thousand dollars owing on it. And I'm, I'm, I wrote back and I thought. You know, maybe you want an emergency fund, and maybe you want some budgeting, um, and maybe a bit of a cash buff for for something that goes wrong with your car, your fifteen thousand dollar car, and maybe you don't want to be investing right away because you know that debt's going to be a bit of an anchor over you. Maybe mm-hmm. try to get rid of that first, then maybe think about what you do with some of your excess cash. So it was an interesting uh, conversation I had with him. Um, you know, for everyone else, to be honest, whether you're a millennial, thirty um, something. Um, you know, uh, aspiring early retiree, what have you, I would, I would encourage most investors to not chase products or companies, but make a plan first. So, you know, we just got back from a, a great vacation, but we wouldn't have bought a plane ticket to go there without knowing what we wanted to do when we got there. Right. And so we're, we're planners. Um, but also smart shoppers don't go to the grocery store before they have a list. And so you kind of need to have, I think a financial plan, you know, what are you investing for? What's your money for? What's your appetite for risk? How can you quantify that? You need to be thinking about all these things um, as an investor before you invest in a particular fund or a product. And I don't think people pay enough attention to basically putting plans before products. And so that's kind of my bias. That's something I would leave uh, you know your your audience with. That's awesome. All right, that's wonderful. Thank you, Mark. And just to really end things off, can you tell us a little bit more about your site, my own advisor, and what's the best way for everyone, anyone to get in touch with you or where people can see some of your writing, et cetera? Yeah, so uh, no problem. So um, my site is called uh, myownadvisor.ca. 
Um, been running it now for about seven, eight years. Uh, happy to do it. Uh, it's great. It's an outlet for me to to talk about my my dividend income journey with my wife, our income goals in general, um, how we invest in, in low cost ETFs. Um, I've got some great partnerships there with with uh, Canadian Money Saver and 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 Five I um, relationships around talking about low cost portfolio solutions for folks. Again, it's totally unbiased. It's my own perspective. It's it's been, it's I share my own experiences. I also have an opportunity to um, you know interview you know VPs and CEOs of various financial companies across Canada. They've been great to reach out and contact me and talk to me about some of their their products and services. Again, it's, it's all free. People can read it. They can make their own opinions and judgments. Um, I write about insurance and wills and travel tips and all that kind of fun stuff. Um, so yeah, definitely check out myownadvisor.ca. Um, I got profiles from millennials to, to millionaires and and lots to share every week and um, and happy to do it. Awesome. All right. That's wonderful, Mark. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much, Cornell. Appreciate the time. All right. Take care. Bye. All right, I hope you enjoyed the episode and thank you for tuning in. A big thanks to Paytm for sponsoring the episode. And don't forget to try out Paytm on your phone or tablet for free to get $10 off any bill that you're paying. Just go to paytm.ca, download the app, select the bill you want to pay, and use the promo code BUILDWEALTH to get a free $10 cash back on that bill. In addition to that, you'll get up to 2% cash back on bills that you pay with the app as opposed to the 0% that you're currently getting at your bank. And you can find get cash back rewards on all those utility bills, property tax bills, and tuition payments and others that don't typically accept credit cards. As a Bill of Canada listener, you'll get that $10 for free. Just go to paytm.ca on your phone or tablet, download the app, and when you're paying a bill, use the promo code BUILDWEALTH all lowercase and one word to get that $10 cash back on the bill. All right, so that's all for today. A big thanks to our sponsor, paytm.ca. Have a wonderful week and talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Build Wealth Canada podcast at www.buildwealthcanada.ca. 